Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, guys. Welcome back to another episode. Welcome back for another one. This week we're going to be discussing a case that I felt like I had to write an episode about because we talked about Tina Bell a couple of weeks ago and we talked about how one of the last people who saw her was a man called Billy Dunlop. This link was really worrying because he went on to murder a woman just a few months later and many listeners have been in touch saying that they do believe he was responsible for Tina's murder too. So this week, as promised, we're going to be bringing you the story of the murder of Julie Hogg. Before we do that, let's take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. I'm going to try not to make a hash of this, uh, but I've got them in all different places. So uh, Sarah Cordry, thank you very much. Sukarita Chakravarti, Stephanie Bacon, Joanne Bassett and Ashlyn Fenton and Sinead Morahan. Thank you to each and every one of you. Of course, thanks, huge thanks to our existing Patreon supporters too. If you would like to join these people, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and we'll see you there. Yes, thank you so much, everybody. And like Mark said, thank you to everyone who supports us. So whilst this is an incredibly tragic and heartbreaking case, it also features a huge change in our legal system that has done so much good. So Billy Dunlop became the first person to be charged twice with the same offence after 800-year-old double jeopardy laws were repealed. And this was following 15 years of campaigning by Julie Hogg's mum, Anne Ming. And of course, she's not the only one to have campaigned. The family of Stephen Lawrence and many others have also had their own personal reasons for fighting for this change in the law. We've previously talked about Stephen Lawrence and his brutal murder. And we've also talked a little bit about how the change in law finally meant one of his killers, Gary Dobson, was actually made to stand trial for a second time over the teenager's death. So what is the double jeopardy law? And what does it kind of mean for cases in like this? So for 800 years, the basic principle of England's criminal law was that there was no second go at getting a conviction if the suspect had been cleared by a jury. So basically for the prosecution, you have one trial, that's it. And if you can't prosecute that person, there's no other option. And then a killer could, and many did, brag about what they'd done, knowing full well there was no way to see them tried again. And that we've seen that in a number of cases that we've covered on the show. And we've seen it time and time again in history that they knew that they could get, they'd got away with this now. They knew they had. Yeah, I didn't really want to interrupt while you're explaining it because I think it's really worthwhile just taking that time to explain the history of this law. But I can't not because, yeah, we've come across it so much in historic cases that we've covered where it is just so frustrating because everybody knows that that person is responsible. They've been found innocent by a jury and then they have this immunity from further prosecution so they can go and boast about it and they have literally got away with murder and sometimes probably gone on to commit it again because they're invincible. So yeah, yeah. it's always, you know, it's just been one of those weird anomalies with the law before it was repealed and changed that was just made no sense did it really well i kind of get it a little bit because no bethan it made no fucking sense <laughs> I'm not well having it. what i would say is that if somebody is cleared and they were innocent to keep wasting the court's time bringing the same case before a jury 
in the hopes that you would then have them prosecuted, but the jury keeps finding it the same same result. Mm. That would be a waste of everybody's time and money. However, it's in these really serious cases like this that absolutely it is not right. And especially if you then have someone who goes on to brag about something, that's, you know, that's a definitive. They did do this. But that is a that is a really good point about, yeah, how we've got to, well, I mean, obviously it's changed now, but I do understand the basis of it. We've got a judicial system in place and you can't just keep pushing for another trial because you didn't get the outcome that you wanted. Exactly. It's the same when you look on the flip side with appeals. You have to have a good enough basis for an appeal. You yeah. can't just keep going to court and saying, well, I don't like what I was sentenced for. Yeah. In 2005, the law of double deputy, double deputy, double jeopardy was changed. And this would allow a second trial, but only for the most serious of offences. So that includes murder, of course. There has been a lot done to ensure that retrials aren't just handed out willy-nilly, of course, because like I said, you can't just do it because you didn't like the answer. Basically, the long and the short of it is that the original acquittal could be overturned if the Court of Appeal is convinced that there is new and compelling evidence to put before a jury that would not have been available at the time of the original case. And then the new trial can take place, the new evidence, potentially, and you would hope, the person is then found guilty after all. This change in the law has been groundbreaking in many cases. So as well as Julie's story, we're also going to be looking at another case with links to this historic change in double jeopardy laws as well. There are so many more examples of this, but there's also more that the campaigners want to see. So for example, I think I think you'll find this really fascinating, Mark. Double jeopardy laws state that someone who has been accused can't be tried on the same charges unless there is new and compelling evidence and the crime is considered severe and serious. So that's kind of the wording. Currently, the only exception to allow for a retrial on a sexual abuse offence is rape. And it's described in a really awful clinical term um, where it has to be penetrative, enforced, or something along those lines. It's, It's very, very much rape is the only sexual assault. So even if someone has stood trial for the abuse of a minor, for example, and there was no evidence and they didn't didn't get convicted, and then evidence comes to light, if they didn't rape that person, they will not be brought back to trial. And they could go and brag about the offence they committed and they could admit to it and still have immunity from further prosecution. Yeah, that's frustrating. That makes no sense because... Yeah. Yeah, I I do understand, you know, we're talking rape and we're talking murder. They are serious offences, but so is the sexual abuse of a minor, and that should be included within this. But equally, I understand not having everything included, but you do need... That does need expanding somewhat. Isn't it interesting? Yeah, it's such an interesting element to this. So there are campaigners, and there's campaigns ongoing at the moment... They believe that all child abuse offences should be included. And so, yeah, there's loads in, in even still ongoing now. I think we think of this as in the law changed, that's that. But there's still people yeah. who believe that this could be changed again and, and developed further. And maybe it will be. 
Potentially, yeah. So due to that rule, the campaigners state that many victims will never be able to obtain justice or closure from the criminal courts because the law currently stands that their charges aren't deemed serious or severe enough. Obviously to them they are, but in the eyes of the law, double jeopardy stands. So I did think it was quite interesting to see that there are still ways in which the law could be improved or people want to see those changes happening. I um I, I must admit, I think I just I knew that double jeopardy had been scrapped sort of fifteen, twenty years ago. But I must admit I thought it had just been completely scrapped and it didn't really matter what the crime was. So even if somebody had been found not guilty of committing a robbery, they then new evidence came to light. I, I thought that they could be tried again and would be but it doesn't really apply to that. So that is interesting. Yeah, it is. So um, I just, yeah, it's so interesting. And I always find these cases where we talk about changes in the law or historic moments in our history within law and within criminal cases, I always find these so much more interesting because you can see the impact it really has on normal people. Yeah. Our case this week begins in November 1989, just a few months after Tina Bell went missing. 22-year-old Julie Hogg had recently separated from her husband of a few years called Andrew, and she was living at the family home in County Durham in the northeast of the UK with their three-year-old son, Kevin. And to be married with a three-year-old child at the age of 22 would not have been that unusual back then in 1989, it feels a bit unlikely now, doesn't it, in 2023? Yeah, I feel like things are, are probably delayed by another 10 years now. And Julie worked nights delivering pizzas. Her parents, with whom she was close, helped out with babysitting duties overnight when she had work. And it just kind of sounds like a very normal, reasonably happy, just family life. She had an active social life as well. Now, one of the men she had been seeing in previous weeks was Billy Dunlop. Now, he's 100% the sort of man that you would warn your daughters about getting involved with. He was a heavy drinker, often getting into fights, a really violent man. On the night of the 15th of November, Dunlop had been at a strip show at a rugby club in Billington. He'd been drinking heavily, and when he got into a fight with another man, it was so violent the other man ended up in hospital. What a way to spend the night! I was going to make a joke about it being an average Tuesday for you, Mark, but (laughs) I genuinely couldn't because Dunlop is such a dick. Well, I'm a bit of a dick, but not that much of a dick. So, yeah, Tuesdays are reserved for less nefarious activities in my house. Wednesdays are when you go to your strip show. It's more a Wednesday. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Julie, on the other hand, was having a much more sensible night. she just got home from a shift delivering her pizzas. Her son was tucked up in bed with his grandparents. And we don't know for definite what went on that night, but you can imagine, I imagine her just getting home and thinking she was going to go to bed soon. And then here arrives Billy Dunlop knocking at her front door. Well, she was probably knackered because she'd been looking after her son all day and then goes out delivering pizzas all night, comes home, probably just wants to go to bed. Yeah. That's what I imagine too. Yeah. And we obviously don't know for definite, but Dunlop did later talk about that night. So we know a little bit about it. So after the strip show and his fight, Dunlop originally claimed he went to his friend's house. It later transpired that he did head over to Julie's house. The pair had had sex the week before. So he turned up kind of hoping to have sex with her. And By his own admission years later, Julie actually laughed at him because of the injuries to his face from that fight. 
We don't know what happened for sure, but it would appear that Julie refused Dunlop's sexual advances, probably a little bit more than a little bit put off by the fact that he was absolutely wasted, covered in blood, maybe got scratches and cuts all over him. Not the most attractive, I should imagine. No, and she was probably just knackered as well. Exactly like you said. No, go away. I don't want to... This is not an attractive proposition any day of the week, is it? No. Not even on a Tuesday for Mark. <laughs> Not even on a Tuesday, no. <laughs> but of course, we're being jovial, but this rebuttal from Julie absolutely enraged Dunlop. He strangled Julie, he smothered her with a pillow, and he sexually abused her and assaulted her. The following morning, Julie's mother Anne called Julie at 7.30 in the morning, but she got no reply. Julie was due in court for a separation hearing and this was massively important. It wasn't like her to not be up and about getting ready for the day ahead. Anne, getting increasingly worried with the lack of response, drove to the house with Julie's brother. And when they arrived, there was no answer. So, of course, they broke into the house. They were really shocked when they saw how tidy the house was because Julie was known to be a bit untidy and Anne said she was especially shocked when she saw that the bed was made That was something Julie never did. Now, here I did feel like I could make a joke about you and your house, Mark. (laughs) Rude. I do do feel, I mean, I I know it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, this is horrific what's happened. But it does take me back to the Lucy Letby case and those pictures of her bedroom surfacing following her initial arrest, I think, in 2018. Mm. And her bedroom was like a fucking state. And it, it was like, yeah, it just... I don't know. I just, I know, I think I'd have been quite embarrassed to have that released to the media, but I'm a freak, so. I feel like her embarrassment about her bedroom is the least of her worries, Mark. Well, yeah, for for Lisa, Mm. that'd be. And yeah, this this is incredibly sad. Yeah, I mean... I can only imagine how desperate Anne must have felt because she knew her daughter really well. She was looking after her grandson and, yeah, that was an important day, an important morning for Julie and she's nowhere to be seen or heard from. So, of course, they're racing round and, yeah, what a horrific discovery that they're going to go on to make. I know. And frustratingly for Julie's parents, the police just weren't that concerned about Julie When her parents reported her missing, the police simply stated that they wouldn't take action straight away because she may have decided to go missing by choice. And of course, her parents knew she would never have voluntarily left her young three-year-old son and they continued calling the police over the coming days, their concern increasing day by day, hour by hour even, knowing full well Julie would not vanish of her own accord. And so finally, on the 20th of November, the police did go to Julie's home and they spent two days searching it. The police informed Julie's mum, Anne, that there was nothing found in the house. And one policeman even went so far as to say, I can guarantee nothing untoward has happened in that house. And Julie was listed as a missing person by the police. That was it on the surface. Of course, Julie's parents continued their searching That was kind of it from the investigation, really. It wasn't until February of the following year, months after Julie had vanished, that the truth came out. We talk about it time and time again, about how an adult is allowed to leave to choose to go missing. But so often that person's family just know they wouldn't have done that. And I know you can't police off gut feelings of the public. But it's really sad when we hear of these cases where... The families just aren't listened 
especially when the person hasn't used their bank account or modern times if they're not seen on social media or on their phone or on CCTV. It kind of feels inevitable that they must have come to harm. Yeah, it's it's really sad because I think the family know, like you say, it's a gut feeling, isn't it? They know their son or their daughter or their brother or their partner inside out and that's they know that that's unusual behavior and they know what they may have been like leading up to that so they might have been acting totally normally not displaying any signs of depression for example and that doesn't always follow people can mask and hide that but yeah most most of the time they would know that that they are likely to have come to serious harm and the police are potentially just saying well actually we've got no evidence to to say that and she's an adult she's allowed to walk out on her life whether you like it or not and that must just be really difficult for them to hear because they know in the heart of hearts that their relative, whoever it might be, has come to serious harm and is most likely dead. But they need to know. Yeah. So in February 1990, Julie's husband, from whom she was separated, had made the choice to move back into their marital home with their son, Kevin. This must have been a really hard thing to do. He'd obviously moved out when they'd separated Perhaps he tried to believe that she'd upped and left their little boy, hard as this would have been to believe. Maybe he hoped she'd be back soon. Perhaps he even thought they might reconcile. I don't know, I'm just imagining the scenarios here. What would have been going through his mind moving back into his family home with his son, but not with his wife? And and I'm sure he would have had really conflicted feelings because they were separated They'd obviously gone through, you know, that's quite traumatic yeah. really, isn't it, usually? For so whatever gone reason that. that they'd been yeah. separated, that's all happened. You know, valid reasons for that. And then he's now thinking some serious harm has come to her and that's going to stir up all sorts of emotions and feelings and, and guilt perhaps of if we'd never split up, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it, that must just be really difficult. When I, I always think that when couples have separated and then something happens to the other, uh, one of them, uh, yeah, I just think that must just stir up some really weird, difficult feelings. What I am certain of is that he was not expecting to walk into their home and to this awful smell no. that awaited him. I know. Andrew called Julie's mum, Anne, for advice and she quickly came round to help him. And on realising that the smell was coming from the bathroom, Anne began to look for the source. Horrifically, when she knocked the bath panel, it fell down and inside the cavity, she found the body of her darling daughter. Julie was naked, her body was badly decomposed, but her mum knew that was it was her. A post-mortem was unable to determine her exact cause of death, but they did find that she had been sexually attacked and a weapon of some kind had been inserted into her vagina... And then she had been shoved unceremoniously under the bath and the panel had been replaced. I'm I'm really shocked at that. I didn't know any of that. To think that she was in that house the entire time. And Anne, I mean, she's found her daughter, which is bad enough. She was actually later awarded £20,000 in damages from Cleveland Police because of the way that they'd handled that investigation because they spent two days searching that house and told her that there was nothing There was no evidence of anything. And at that point, Julie was in there under the bath. The entire time. Surely you'd have had sniffer dogs in there or you would know. They obviously didn't do a proper search, did they? Or taking out the bath. The bath panel is kind of like pretty normal thing to do. Yeah, that's awful. 
So police began to hunt for the killer and several suspects were initially questioned by police. And of course, this list included men that Julie had been close with. Former boyfriend Billy Dunlop was one of them. When questioned by police about that night, Dunlop claimed that after the rugby club, he went to visit a friend that lived in a nearby street. However, witness statements did not agree with this. The police arrested and charged Dunlop with Julie Hogg's murder, and he was remanded to Durham Prison. His trial for murder began in May 1991 at Newcastle Crown Court, and the prosecution case seemed strong. So the police had found Dunlop's fingerprints on Julie's house keys, which were recovered from under a floorboard in Dunlop's house, so clearly they'd been hidden there by him. And semen on the blanket that was found by Julie's body was proven to be Dunlop's. However, the jury were unable to reach a verdict, and so the judge ordered a retrial. At the retrial, the jury again failed to reach a verdict, and Billy Dunlop was formally acquitted of murdering Julie Hogg, and he walked free. After 20 months in custody, Billy Dunlop was incredibly pleased to be a free man. However, he was not one to think, wow, what a lucky escape I've had, maybe I should change my ways. Of course he wasn't. He, like you said at the beginning, was one of the people who thinks, well, I've got away with murder, I've got away with this. I'm invincible. Yeah, I think it can really buoy a criminal to go on to continue and to escalate with their crimes because, yeah, they've they've walked free from a murder charge and that not many people get that opportunity and also then that immunity from from prosecution on that charge so i think it would it would just make you think i'm i've got a superpower here and back home for dunlop was the mother of his children and his ex-partner jane wadsworth i can't even imagine how she must have felt finding out that he was charged with murder then to be waiting on the results of the trial he'd been a heavy drinker and violent when they'd been together and whilst i cannot say this for sure i feel certain that she probably did believe him capable of what he was being charged with and put on trial for and if she had thought that she must have been absolutely terrified on his release if she wasn't before then she was soon after he came home because it wasn't long before he was back to drinking heavily and back to his old ways he was so physically abusive towards her and one night when he had been drinking heavily he came home became violent towards Jane, he actually held her up against a wall with his hand around her neck and threatened to kill her and said, I'll do it, I've done it before and I got away with it. That must have just been terrifying because, yeah, yeah, she's thinking, oh my God, he definitely, definitely did do it. He got away with it. This man is capable of, yeah, doing what he wants and escaping the consequences. And eventually, I mean, bravely, she, she couldn't take any more of this violence the beatings that came with living with Dunlop so she really bravely made the decision to leave him but of course Dunlop trapped her down and he asked to see the children she agreed but that evening at the house he sexually assaulted Jane produced a knife Jane genuinely thought this was the end for her miraculously one of the children started crying and that distracted him enough and he didn't and he didn't actually use the knife on her so she once again made the brave move to start her life away from Dunlop. This time she actually went to court and she got sole custody of the children. So thankfully she was able to make a new life for herself and the little ones. But of course Dunlop wasn't going to change. Months later he spotted a previous girlfriend out with her new boyfriend and of course being the dickhead that he was he got obscenely jealous. That night he crept into their house and he attacked them. He beat the man with a bat multiple times he fractured his face 
his skull, like every bone in his face was apparently broken. And he only stopped when the bat broke. This man, bless him, he had to have his face rebuilt with metal plates. And then Dunlop turned his attention towards his terrified ex-girlfriend and stabbed her repeatedly with a barbecue fork seven times. So Dunlop was charged with attempted murder and he admitted to the lesser offence of GBH. And so for this, Dunlop was jailed for seven years. And it's at this point where the double jeopardy law kind of comes into play here because whilst he was in prison for this GBH offence, he openly talked about killing Julie. He bragged about it. He said he'd never go to prison for it because he'd already been to trial and so double jeopardy meant he couldn't be tried again. A conversation between Dunlop and a prison guard who actually was wearing a wire with a secret recording device, that conversation was actually captured. Now, Dunlop's confession wouldn't result in a conviction at this point, but the police did take him into custody. They questioned him again about Julie's murder and he just brazenly, completely openly confessed to killing Julie to the police detectives. But but why wouldn't he? Because he was safe. He's completely invincible. I, I think yeah. if anything, the police are stupid for hauling him back into custody to question him about this when they can't do anything about it. And well, I can understand why he just... They could do a little because they were then able to charge him with two counts of perjury. So one Ah, for each of the trials where he lied, saying he was innocent because he then said, no, I I lied. So he did get sentenced to six years in prison for that. So maybe they're just trying to keep him off the streets in whatever way they can, potentially. I, I feel like I have heard that happening before where they yeah where what before the law was repealed the prosecution the cps couldn't go after them for the same charge so they would absolutely nail them for perjury which is a really easy one to uh, go for and it's always always carries quite a considerable sentence because it's kind of like the the uh, criminal is laughing in the face of the judicial system and that's taken very seriously so yeah, yeah I, lo- I love that they did that, but it's still... They did do something. Yeah, it's something, but it's not it's not enough, is it, for Julie's family? It's not. And I, I do also wonder, I don't know this for sure, but I do wonder if potentially the police were kind of seeing it as, well, what if in the future things do change? Like, what if, maybe? Yeah, because, this buys I mean, us time. Because back in the day before we had DNA, you'd still keep as much evidence as you could in the hope... Well, we still do, in the hopes that science moves forward, so... Maybe it was a little bit of that. I don't know. Yeah, and this is th- that. That was the late nineties that he was convicted of perjury. So, DNA science was still really groundbreaking and coming along every single year. So, yeah, maybe they did think that there's going to be some other DNA that might link him to the actual murder. Yeah, that they could maybe use at some point, or even maybe if if he does something else, we've got him. At least we've got evidence that he's evil from the past so if anything happens to another woman it might be easier to get him convicted potentially I don't I don't know but this was an absolutely heartbreaking moment for Julie's family her killer had openly bragged about strangling Julie about smothering her with a pillow he'd admitted his guilt and Julie's mum was so frustrated and felt totally let down by the criminal justice system she just couldn't quite like she just couldn't bring herself to understand how a murderer could confess but not be convicted just because of this old rule and at the time she said it is acceptable in this country for someone to be acquitted of a murder then to confess and only be charged with perjury 
she was just incredulous. There was nothing the law could do about it. But of course, not at that time. So Julie's parents began to campaign to get the law changed. Finally, in 2005, after years of tireless work by Anne and many others as well, the UK's double jeopardy laws that had existed for over 800 years were turned on their head. So the laws that had meant that an individual couldn't be charged with the same crime twice were changed. And in this scenario, this fit with the scenario of when you could have a retrial, Dunlop could be retried. And the new and compelling evidence will, of course, his full, totally frank confession. So he had no other option. He had to admit to Julie's murder at trial. See, the the confession, I wasn't sure if that would count as new evidence, because is it evidence? It's just, you know, he it, could say... Yeah, it does count, yeah. Yeah, I do find that interesting, because I know, I mean, you could withdraw that at a later date, but it's too late, he's kind of said it, so... Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, I've learned something there. Yeah, I think um, it can count as evidence and also the recorded conversation would count as well. That's true. Yeah. And I suppose as well, even if you if you say to him, the law has changed, we can now retry you. He may then just agree to plead guilty straight away anyway, even mm. if, but I don't know if his, his law, his um, lawyers wouldn't really allow, wouldn't you know, recommend he did that, I suppose. So I guess it must, I, I it think must that's be counted a rather, as evidence. I think that's a rather optimistic take on it. And by <laughs> it optimistic, I mean naive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And by naive, I mean stupid. Oh, thanks for calling <laughs> me stupid. I just see the best in people, okay, Mark? I know, I love it. <laughs> so on the 6th of October in 2006, 17 years after the brutal slaying of Julie, Dunlop admitted to her murder at the Old Bailey. Fuck, he, was he admitted convicted. it. At trial, he admitted it. Yeah, he basically had to, didn't he? Because even if he said he was innocent, well, the jury's going to see that you confessed to it all. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. I suppose he's kind of got to, but he did. And he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, and he was given a minimum term of 17 years. Over a decade after their daughter's murder, Julie's killer was finally convicted. Their fight for justice came to an end. And the police praised Mr and Mrs Ming's determination in their fight to get the law changed. Detective Superintendent Dave Duffy said, Together they have fought and won a campaign to change the double jeopardy law that has been the cornerstone of British justice for 800 years. They never wavered throughout some very difficult times in their commitment to seek justice for their daughter Julie. Today, it finally came. But an interesting point is that Dunlop is technically eligible for parole right now in October 2023. I can't find anything anywhere about this, so whether or not he's actually going to be applying or not. But I thought that was really interesting. It doesn't feel that long ago, 2005, but it it actually is. And I mean, he's going to apply for that, whether it's granted or not is another matter. But Equally, it depends really on the last 17 years and and how he's conducted himself inside. But yeah, he potentially stands a really strong chance of getting out. And this is a, you know, you cannot deny it, even having served time in prison and hopefully having an element of rehabilitation. I'm sceptical because he's an intrinsically violent man who at every turn has shown that towards women and that's worrying isn't it that he could be out before this Christmas and starting seeking starting a new relationship and has he changed his ways probably not I suppose we we really have to hope that 
I mean, obviously, it's life with a minimum term, so he'll be on some sort of license. He'll be on a license. If he is released. But I just, I guess we have to put our faith in the fact that rehabilitation is supposed to be the key element to putting someone in prison. So I just don't know. Yeah. And also, I mean, it is a deterrent. So he was finally held accountable for Julie's murder and served a a decent term, not Mm -hmm. overly long, but 17 years at least. So yeah, he would he would know the consequences now and probably wouldn't want to end up back in prison. So therefore that in theory should be enough to keep him on the straight and narrow on the outside. Doesn't always follow. But if he did go on to kill another woman, for example, he would face a whole life tariff if he was convicted of that. I don't remember how old he is, but he must be around 60, I think. Yeah, yeah. So So, that kind of goes in his favour as well. Yeah, he hopefully would not be... Uh, I don't know. I mean, a 60-year-old can still be physically violent and intimidating and strong and fit, but hopefully that's an element that potentially as he's gotten older, he would just want more of an easier life to get out and be able to enjoy old age and that sort of thing. I don't know. With the C word creeping upon us, I think it's something like nine weeks to go now. We may be thinking about gifts for our loved ones. So why not take a look at one of our wonderful listeners' businesses? That's Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited. We are genuinely excited to tell you all about them again. This is a small family-run business that was established in 2011 by a husband and wife duo. With offerings in all aspects of jewellery design as well as jewellery parts, loose stones, repairs and bespoke one-off pieces, they specialise in high-quality British-made jewellery from a UK business. I bought a beautiful pendant from these guys. It is a staple of my wardrobe. I love it and it's gorgeous. And I really love my bee earrings that they sent me too. Oh, I, yes, I remember those. I loved those. Yeah, I've bought stuff from them. I bought something for my mum. I can't remember what it was, but I know that she loved it. I feel like it was a necklace. I, can't I think it might have been a necklace. It's always my go-to, particularly at this time of year. Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited work with a variety of metals such as yellow, white and rose gold, as well as silver, which is what I purchased, and platinum, because I probably couldn't afford that. So there really is something for everyone. Beautiful Jewellery Company Limited offer a wide range of products which can be made with customer specifications and to their own design and to their own choice of gemstones and dim... I was going to say demands. (laughs) With their own choice of demands. I mean, technically, that's not incorrect. It was supposed to be diamonds, but... Demands isn't incorrect because I've definitely said before, I got Dan to create a bracelet for me to gift to my bestie when she was getting married. And I mean, I I would say I requested rather than demanded, but it was definitely made to my specifications. It was so lovely to know that she was getting this unique piece of jewellery. No one else has that. And it's hers for her wedding day. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so special. You, You can have assurance that this is unique. Now, we do also have a really special offer for listeners of Seeing Red. If you've listened to us talk about a beautiful jewellery company before, you'll know about this discount. It is a timeless discount code of RED10, which is active on the site for a discount of 10% off your entire basket. And there is no minimum order amount. The great thing is that all orders are available with worldwide shipping. The website is ever-changing and new products are added daily with special offers and unique rarities on offer throughout the year. So what are you waiting for? Head over to, I'm not going to say the www. No, Bethan. Head over to beautifuljewelrycompany.co.uk and don't forget to use that discount code. It's RED10, so the word RED and the numbers 10 for 10% off your entire order. 
I mentioned at the top of the episode that, of course, there have been some other major cases that have had convictions thanks to the change to the double jeopardy laws. On the 25th of October 2001, 24-year-old Mario Soler argued with his 19-year-old girlfriend, Cassandra McDermott, about her having damaged a car that he lent her. Soler was a narcissistic control freak with a history of violence against young women. At the age of 15, he was jailed for four years for his part in a gang rape of a 17-year-old girl who had learning disabilities. You can see what kind of person he was going to grow up to be. That's like, I mean, there's, yeah, that's truly shocking. And on his release, he went on to form a relationship with 15-year-old Cassandra and violence just wasn't unusual. He regularly would punch and hit her. On the night in question, after picking up a takeaway, Cassandra had headed to her mum's home because she was going to be house-sitting. Solaire, who had been living in a Croydon YMCA at the time, had come round and during the argument he turned violent. He punched Cassandra in the face and left her unconscious on the living room floor where she choked to death on the Chinese food that she was eating and she died on the floor in that room that night. Cassandra's sisters found her the following day. Following a trial in 2002, Solaire was found not guilty of Cassandra's murder, so he claimed that she was alive and well when he left her. There was no evidence to the contrary. Six years later, in February 2007, Solaire attacked his ex-girlfriend, Cara Hoyt, who was also just 19, but obviously this is six years later, so he's still Mm. in these, what I wouldn't really even call relationships, but with really young girls that he obviously could control. Um, and he attacked her with a hammer because he found out that she had a new boyfriend. He left her for dead, but she was found in a pool of blood, however, alive. So she did have her skull fractured in three places. She made this really incredible recovery. Considering her injuries included severe brain damage, um, she really did do amazingly to kind of come out of this. And Kara also really bravely identified her attacker. So she couldn't talk at this point, but she repeatedly hit her fist on a whiteboard that had his name on it because her mum sat there and kind of wrote out a list of names of suspects. And she was like, it's it's him, it's him. Solaire was given a life sentence and told to serve a minimum of 23 years because he did plead guilty to this attack on Kara. Suffering from speech difficulties, it took almost a year before Kara was actually able to talk to detectives. It wasn't just her attack that she could then tell them about. So Kara was also able to tell police that she'd asked Solaire about what had happened to Cassandra. He initially told her that Cassandra had died after being sick from eating a Chinese meal, but finally he did admit to Kara that he lost his temper and punched her in the face before leaving. Detectives also kind of think then that maybe the attack on Kara was actually because he realised I've told her something that she may go to the police with. Um, It was thought of, you see, at first it was because he got jealous of a new boyfriend and it it may have been a mix of of both. I mean, it was convenient for him to have her out of the way because she she knows his secret. Yeah, and now she's moving on with someone else. He's not controlling her, so it's probably a mix of it all, isn't it? So detectives arrested Solaire after using the change in the double jeopardy law to reopen Cassandra's case. And finally, the truth came out. Solaire had actually smashed Cassandra's head three or four times against a door edge. And then he'd covered her with a duvet before abandoning her. The prosecution stated he did nothing to call for help. 
Had he done so, Cassandra may not have died. Instead, as he always seems to do, he only thought of himself. And that was the start of seven and a half years of lying to protect himself for taking responsibility for what he had done. So, Solaire was then sentenced at the Old Bailey to eight years for Cassandra's manslaughter, which he was told would run alongside the life in jail with a minimum term of 23 years for Cara's attempted murder. So where Dunlop was the first person to be convicted after an acquittal in the UK after the law changed, Solaire was the first person to be convicted after previously being found innocent of a crime. It's just, it is scary though, isn't it, that he he just went on to, again like we saw with Dunlop, just didn't change. He got away with something and rather than then changing his life around, just continue to be who he was. That's the frustrating thing because I think we're trying to apply logic to it and we we can't, I mean, not that of course, hopefully we'd we ever be in... Of Yeah, and hopefully we'd never be in that situation where we carry out a violent act like that and then get away with it subsequently. But I know that, yeah, you're right. If we're normal-ish people and logical and we would just sort of think... God, that was a narrow escape. I'll be a good boy now. And we do that, don't we, in the course of our daily lives? We get away with something trivial and we sort of think, I'll never do that again, I promise. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's it. We're trying to apply logic to somebody who isn't logical. Yeah. People are going to be thinking, what, what does Mark mean? What has he, what has he been getting What's away he done with? That I'm talking really trivial after. stuff like going through an amber light, which I did get into trouble for. So, And I did promise mm. I wouldn't do it again. Yeah, Good, don't do it again. No, it's dangerous, I won't. PSA, Mark's PSA. Don't go through an amber light, says Mark, from Seeing Red. So at sentencing, the judge told Solaire, your delay in admitting these charges so long after the offences had been committed was callous and calculating. In the case of Cassandra's family, they no longer have the joy of seeing her progress through life. And in the case of Cara, her family have the heartache of a life forever changed. Both girls were vulnerable. They were alone. They trusted you. They let you into their homes when they thought that they were safe and you showed them no mercy. In my judgment, you present a very real and continuing danger to young women with whom you enter into a relationship. The families of Celeste's two victims actually cheered and screamed liar and dead man walking when he was sentenced, which I thought was, they were just so grateful that finally he was kind of facing justice for both cases. And Cassandra's mum said outside of court, only now can the truth come out of the vicious assaults that he inflicted on Cassandra, of his history of violence to her during their relationship. All I have are my memories of Cassandra. They are good memories, but they will remain memories. Nothing will bring her back. Nothing will bring back the moments that we had together. I will never see her grow up, get married or start a family. And Cara, who was present in court, sobbed uncontrollably and clutched her mum for support. And she really bravely issued a very moving statement as she faced the man who would try to kill her. The prosecution read the letter out to Solaire on her behalf. And I thought it would be quite fitting to kind of end this episode with her powerful words. She said, I stand here today for you to see what you did to me. I don't hate you. I pity you. I will get better and better with each day and stronger. You have only damaged my shell. I am still the same determined and strong person I always was. I leave here today free with the whole world at my feet and a new life and to be whatever I choose to be. You, on the other hand, have a long time to reflect and to understand that you cannot control another person. I really hope she's doing okay now, Mm -hmm. Cara. Yeah. But yeah, that's so incredibly brave for her to have gone through all of that and to attend and... Yeah, she summarises, I think, what everybody thinks, really. 
Mm, just incredible. So there we go. There's um, two incredibly sad cases this week. And two important cases, really, because, yeah. yeah, it's historic. So, mm-hmm. yeah, really interesting. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor. That's beautifuljewellerycompany.co.uk and use code RED10 for 10% off. And if you're able to support us on Patreon, we'd really appreciate that. Just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And if you want to get any merch and stuff, where can they head to, Betham? www.seeingredpodcast.co.uk no. <laughs> I know you hate we'll me, Mark, sorry. I, yeah, I totally do. Uh, until next week then, uh, we'll see you then. Bye, everyone. Bye.